thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Thy praise confess, yea, of thy word, my tongue would sing, yea, of thy word, my tongue would sing, for thy commands are righteousness. Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God has certainly given us some lovely weather these past few days. Can we say thanks be to God? God. Green grass, flower, garden, and outdoor party weather. On days like this, it's easy to forget that we were once without God and without hope. The Scriptures tell us that we were just that, but God, who is rich in mercy, everybody say, God is rich in mercy. For His great love, wherewith He loved us, even that while we were yet sinners, has saved us unto a lively hope. The psalmist in Psalm 96 says, For this reason, O sing unto the Lord a new song, and sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord and bless His name, and show forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His doings and His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all the people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, and He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are but idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord glory due to His name, and bring an offering, and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. For they that fear Him are all of the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reign in the world shall be established, that it shall not be moved, and He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice, and let the earth be glad, and let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful, and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees and the wood rejoice. Before the Lord, for He cometh, He cometh to judge the earth, to judge the world with righteousness, and His people with truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You for inviting us into Your house, Lord. We thank You for looking at us and not seeing us in the midst of our sin, but seeing us covered with the blood of Christ. Lord, though we are scarlet, You have looked upon us and made us like wool. Lord, we pray today that we would have hearts filled with thanksgiving for this. Lord, that you would speak to us once again and that you would feed us from heaven and change us that we might be more like you. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said amen. Amen. Praise Father, Son.
Please remain standing for a few moments as I read to you my text. My text today for my sermon, my sermon is called Dogs, Crumbs, and the Woman of Canaan. And it's from Mark chapter 7, um, starting in verse 24. So Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24, says this. From there he arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said unto her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to your people today. That you would speak to me today, that you would speak through me today to all of us, Lord, that we would hear your voice and be changed by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray and everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated. As every one of you or most of you know, today is Mother's Day. And it was certainly not my intention to preach a Mother's Day message. In fact, I told... My wife, earlier in the week, I was not going to preach a Mother's Day message today about mothers. But the Lord apparently had other plans because right the next thing that I came to, the text that I was supposed to preach on, I got to studying it, but I really never got to the heart of the story. And the heart of the story is what? It's a mother. It's a mother's love for her daughter. I was seeing... Gentiles and Tyre and Sidon and all kinds of things and humility and all this stuff. But I missed the mother part of the story because I was so intent on not teaching a Mother's Day message today. So we'll see what we can do. Um, This woman obviously loved her daughter very much. And really at the heart of this story is that. That love is willing to do whatever it takes. Love is willing to be humiliated. Love is willing to sacrifice. Um, As a boy, I remember every Christmas. And uh, I remember my mom and dad, we we were not wealthy people. My mom and dad, I would hear them kind of talking about money. Do Do you guys ever talk about money in front of your kids? Kids listen to this, you know, and I remember my mom just going, well, honey, don't just don't get me anything. I don't need anything. Just but get this for the kids. Anybody ever hear, hear your mama say something like that? That was my mom every year. She's like, I, honey, I don't need anything. And it was her way of asking my dad to get something for one of us. And, and year, I, I heard this over and over in our life. I don't need anything, honey. Just just get something just for the kids. And my dad would be like, we're going to go broke. You're going to put us in the debt. You're spending all this money for Christmas. And this went, this went on every year, every year. But my mom was always, oh, honey, just don't buy me anything. Now, 
So I saw the little bit of this. You know, I don't really know how much my parents actually sacrificed uh, for us, but I'm sure they sacrificed a lot throughout their lives to to put us first. I know my dad worked a lot of hours. I know my mother uh, always was trying to get dad to do things for us. This woman sacrificed her pride more than once in her approach to Jesus, and ultimately she persevered through the humiliation, gained freedom for her little daughter from this demon. This worthy work was not uh, maybe seen as a great act of faith, but it was. And if Christ had not pointed out what she did, calling it great faith, I don't, I don't think we would have. We would not have seen this woman falling at the feet of Jesus and, and praying and asking and refusing not to be heard. Get away, get away, get away, get away. He wouldn't even pay any attention to her. He wouldn't even speak to her. And finally the disciples come to Jesus and they're irritated. She won't leave us alone. Would you send this woman away? She was humiliated over. She wouldn't stop. She persevered. Would any of us have seen that as a great act of faith? Come on. Will you do it? Will you do it? Remember that woman that came over and over to the judge that Jesus talks about? She goes to the judge. Judge, I need you to hear my case. I need you to hear my case. Finally, he's like, all right, I'm tired of hearing you, but hearing you complain about it. Who would have ever thought of that of being an act of faith? But Jesus says that it was. So now let's get right to it. Jesus had, as we know, we've been going through this, had fed the 5,000. Teaching his disciples that they could feed people too. And they would be called on. Uh, to do so after Jesus was gone. That he was feeding them now. He was turning the loaves and fishes. But that wasn't always going to be his job because he was leaving. Walking on water to them after they had rowed hours against the wind and taking them immediate to land. Taught them to work like everything depends on them. Uh, But know that in the end, when we've done all we can do, the Holy Spirit will come to their aid and complete the work that is lacking. So the thing I, you know, I could probably Google this and probably somebody really wise said it. Probably it wasn't me, but I, I don't know who said it. Uh, work like it all depends on you, but know that it all depends on him. I think that'd be, I'd like that written down somewhere. I like that. That's, that gives us the desire and gives us the understanding that we should work hard uh, but it, it takes off of us the responsibility is feeling somehow that if we fail... You know, I remember being in Myanmar and the guy, while we were teaching about peacemaking and, and I was saying, blessed are the peacemakers. Remember this? And the guy's like, but, but will I still get to see the kingdom of God if I fail? He said, I try to make peace all the time. He says, but what if I fail? Do I still not to get, you know, that's not where it is, folks. Blessed are the peacemakers. It doesn't mean you have to succeed at it. You just have to be one. You have to try. And God calls us to work uh, and he works all the work that we cannot So after returning to his home and teaching in the synagogue that he was the bread of life, he then told them that unless they ate of his flesh and drank of his blood, then they couldn't follow him. And they, they, many disciples, it says after this point, just left. He explained to them that no man could come to the father, could come to him unless the father had made him able to do it. He told them that those that come would only come because they were called of God to come. He explained this to them and they were trying to figure out how can we do this work? And they said, well, this is not the work of man. It's the work of God. So after he explained to them that they couldn't do anything to earn it and they were frustrated and the only thing they could do to eat his flesh and blood, they all left. So here Jesus is 
now pared down from all the people that have followed him for miracles and then all the next crew that have followed him for the bread. He's now pared down in this small crew in Capernaum and everyone's pretty much left him. No more bread being passed out. No one being healed in Capernaum. They're all leaving him. Well, we're not going to follow this guy. This guy is, this, what this guy's saying is too hard. So Jesus, in response, what does he do next? He leaves town and he walks to the city of Tyre. Now, I have been more and more interested in the geography of the scripture lately, and I was trying to figure out how to get to Tyre. And if you do a Google search on how, what the, how long it takes to get from Tyre, from Capernaum, it says 125 hours. That's a, that's a pretty long time, right? Apparently now they have laws and part of it's Jewish and part of it's Muslim and they don't let you cross certain roads. So that's not how Jesus went. He didn't take that route, okay? But Jesus did walk. It's only 35 miles away. So how it could take 125 hours based on the way they have the roads there, I don't know. Maybe they really just don't want you going from Israel to Lebanon. They're hoping maybe that the car bombers will be frustrated having to take a 125 mile, 125 hour trip. So he goes to the city of Tyre. It's northwest of Capernaum, about 35 miles. And uh, when, when the Bible mentions Tyre, uh, it's usually with another place called Sidon. Everybody say Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon in the Bible is akin to saying Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Now, nowadays, people are more familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, but if you walked into uh, a convenience store, and you said the people down the road are living like Tyre and Sidon, they would know what you were talking about, right? But if you walked in there and you said they're living like Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody would know, right? But the people of Christ's day, when you said Tyre and Sidon, they knew exactly what that meant. And when Jesus went from Capernaum to Tyre, and he doesn't even really even go to the city of Sidon. In fact, Sidon is 20 miles north of that area. But when you put Tyre and Sidon together, there, there used to be, years earlier, there used to be a very powerful, very wealthy area. It would be like saying here, uh, it would be like saying, you know, Los Angeles, or it would be like saying New York City. There was an area that was wealthy and prosperous beyond comprehension. Uh, Tyre and Sidon um, is representative of God's wrath and judgment. And we heard about this in our readings, okay? These two cities represented great pride and a picture of a people who were so wealthy and so well fortified that they believed they were invincible. But they were not. Everybody say, they were not. not. Now, before I get to that, though, I want to point out to you uh, something that I just, I kind of stumbled onto, and it was so interesting I had to pass on. You guys want to hear it? So I'm wanting to find out how far it was from Capernaum to Sidon. And I, I ended up running across this article by a guy named Kari Haas. And the, the article was called, How Far Did Jesus Walk? Because I'm hearing these stories about Jesus and he's in one place. And then like the next day he's in a place like 35 miles away. Like this is, you know, and I know they didn't have cars, right? And so I'm just trying to picture this. And actually, a lot of it has come from spending time with Pastor Nang. He's telling me stories about his life. And he says, oh, I was in this town. And then, oh, then we went to this town. I'm like, well, how in the world did you get there? That's like 100 miles away. Like, I know you didn't have a car. Like, how did it happen? Oh, well, we walked. I'm like, you walked? I mean, if one of you walked 100 miles one time in your life, you'd write a book about it. It'd be like, the, be like I walked 100 miles, you know. But these guys are walking these huge distances all the time. So when I was reading How Far Did Jesus Walk, they figured it out. 
They went through the Gospels in every place Jesus went, and they added it all up. How many miles he walked just in the three years of his ministry? Anybody interested to know how far Jesus walked in three and a half years? You're interested, Heath? And I told the kids wrong the other day because I was remembered it wrong, but I have it written down here. They calculate if Jesus walked just where they said he walked. Now, we know he walked a lot of other places. They didn't tell us, right? But if he walked only exactly where they said he walked, and they're not counting all the walking people do around their house and around their village or whatever, just just on these journeys, Jesus walked 21,500 miles in three and a half years. He averaged 20 miles a day. Now, Pastor Nang was telling me that when they walk, they walk 50 miles in a day. They start off early in the morning, and by the end of the day, by night, they walk 50 miles. Now, how many of you can sort of get that in your mind like you think you could maybe do that? Anybody? You can do it, Bill? Your special Navy training? uh, No? 50 miles? I'm saying, doesn't that kind of boggle your mind? And if Jesus had, uh, as a boy, do you know, every person in Israel was told that they had to make three pilgrimages a year to Jerusalem from no matter where they lived. Do you know how far away the round trip was just from Nazareth to Jerusalem and back? 240 miles. And that wasn't the far reaches of the kingdom of Israel. So now we feel pretty taxed by the church. You know, we have to come to church on Sunday at 11 o'clock, you know. Uh, could you imagine if we required that you walk to Tennessee three times a year? I mean, you'd kind of feel like maybe the church was asking a little bit too much, wouldn't you? I mean, seriously, I mean, a walk to Tennessee, uh, you know, three times a year. I mean, what would that be, right? How long would that take? How much of their life was spent doing this? This is amazing to me. And so I thought I'd pass it on to you. When we read the scriptures, we need to understand that they lived different than we did. That they think different. That they spent their time in a way that we can't comprehend. And so understanding these things better would help us understand them. Some of you are, you know, inconvenienced to, you know, have to do any little thing. And the perseverance and the strength that these people had. uh, Guys, we are lazy. Uh, We are, are, we live very cushy lives. And, and we think we're living rough. And I'm just telling you, I think we miss the whole, I think we miss a lot by not knowing this. Okay. Now, oh, have you guys ever heard of the documentary Super Size Me? Did you guys ever see that? It's about fast food and American obesity, right? They, they said that, uh, that in the entire uh, lifetime of an American, uh, they, they may walk. Uh, 2,500 miles in their entire lifetime, if you count all the walking around their house and their yard and their and everything they do. So that's, that's quite a disparity here in the lifestyle that they live, okay? So now, why did he go to Tyre? Now, I think that Jesus left Capernaum, and I think he went to Tyre because Jesus was wanting to teach something, okay? The Bible says Jesus came unto his own, and his own did what? His own received him not okay so he's in his own he's in his hometown of Capernaum he's healed people he's raised people from the dead he's he's uh, fed uh, thousands of people and now they're all gone I mean could you imagine this you you know we talk about the fickleness 
of people. But I'm saying, you know, Tim, wouldn't you really feel like if you fed thousands of people and raised people from the dead that, you know, you just uh, something you say one day while you're teaching, they're all just going to leave you? You'd kind of think that you had better followers, right? But they were fickle just like people are today. But I think he went there to make this point. He went there to make the point that, that, that the message he was bringing and that the church he was establishing was not just going to be for his elect people that were Israel, that God was going to save the Gentiles, okay? And that the Gentiles, in their humility, would accept him uh, when the people who were being fed and being having their people raised from the dead and all these good things, those people would not accept him. Can you see the disparity here? He, he could say uh, any little small thing and they would go away, but when he would speak to this Gentile woman and call her a dog, I mean, could you imagine on church on Sunday, we invite the people into the community and we go, you know what? You're a bunch of dogs and you don't deserve to be here because you live filthy. But after we're done with the God's people here, we'll bring you dogs in to let you have some food. How do you think they'd respond to that? Do you think they'd respond, oh, I want to hear the word of God? I'll tell you what, though, you can encounter, and I have encountered this over and over again. People who God has touched and has changed their hearts, you can call them a dog. And they'll still come. They'll go, you know what? You are right. I'm a dog. And that is what... We see here in the picture of this, okay? Tyre had become a proverb. Saying Tyre at the time, like I told you, was saying like Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus saw fit to meet this little woman there, showing the humility God had brought to Tyre and its inhabitants, and the same spirit we as Gentiles should have toward God. Now, I don't know if I can do this quickly or not, but I, I know some of you don't know this, and I've got to tell this story. We read about all of God's judgment. Now, d- d- kids, I want you to listen. If you're here and, you're, and your mom and dad's giving you some busy work in your pew to keep you quiet, you want to hear this story because it's amazing, okay? Tyre and Sidon was a very famously rich place, and it had, it had something that, was, that nobody had. It had this outcropping that went out into the sea, and there was a double port. There was a port on each side. And you might not understand how important that is, but ships, to be able to bring goods, they needed to have really deep water because a, a big ship full of a lot of things has a, a, you know, the bottom of the boat, which I think you call what, the keel of the boat, goes way down into the water. So you have to have a deep area to get the ship up there so you can unload it. If not, the ship's got to be way out there and they've got to send little ships back and forth and you're not going to get a lot of done that way, okay? But Tyre had a double port. It was, the waters were so deep around it and you could get in so close that it had two ports and it made it like the richest place on earth. In fact, Tyre is known and they claim to have taught navigation on ships. It's where the origin, where it originated, that that was the beginning of it. And they became so rich and so powerful and so important, uh, that, that, that it was amazing. And so they were around during the time uh, of course, of a lot of the Old Testament stories, and they were they were a part of the people that were supposed to be driven out of the land. They were the Canaanites, okay? But instead of driving them out of the land, Israel made friends with them. And in fact, uh, King, I believe it was King Ahab, marries one of the people from the town, okay? So, so they had a relationship... They had a friendship with them that they should have never had. But this city, okay, I have to describe it a little bit, okay? 
This city was an amazing city that had fortified walls that are just unreal, okay? Bigger than Jericho, uh, more powerful than Jericho, huge, okay? They would sit inside their city and laugh at giant armies that would come to them, okay? And not only did they have this, but out about a half mile out to sea, they had another fortress out there. And the fortress they built had walls that were 150 feet high made of rock. So imagine if you were going to conquer these people, you would have to find a boat or somewhere out in the water and you'd have to go out a half a mile and then you'd be confronted with 150 feet tall walls. How many people do you think were going to go and try to attack Tyre? Everybody say not too many, right? But what happened is, is when Nebuchadnezzar came and he sacked Jerusalem, the people of Tyre thought it was funny. And they made jokes about it and they laughed at it and it became known in Tyre and Sidon that they were making fun of the people. They're like, you know, Jerusalem, oh, you really thought you were a beautiful city, but you're nothing. And you know what? We could just walk right in and we can take whatever we want. And so they sent people down there and they took stuff. One of the kings of Tyre actually, through Solomon, uh, paid for and helped build the temple. His wealth. He was so wealthy. He, his name was Hiram. Okay. And so... So these guys knew about the wealth that was in Jerusalem and they knew about it in the temple. They were all, but somehow as time passed, there was a fallout between Israel and, uh, and the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they were making fun. So God found out about this and he sends Joel and Ezekiel to prophesy against them. Okay. So there's a, there's an article. If you want to read details about this, this article is called the destruction of Tyre by a guy named David Padfield. And uh, he talks about this. And Moody has made a video. How many have seen the Moody video about Tyre and Sidon? If you haven't seen it, every person in this church should watch it. It's utterly fantastic. Okay? You'll hear why. Kids, are you still listening? Because you're going to like this, what I'm getting ready to tell you. So they were making fun of Israel, okay? And and, And so God sent the prophet Joel... And what did he say here? I got it in here in my notes here. He says to Joel, he says, What have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, all the coast of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation on your head because you have taken my silver and my gold. You've carried it into your temples, my prized possessions, the people of Judah. They were taking the children of Israel kids and they were selling their little girls into slavery okay and god was very angry about this um so god sent the babylonians to judge tyre and he told them that he would and you and you heard about this in ezekiel 26 did you hear that steve was reading it and steve was thinking then i said he's like man that's pretty rough stuff what did he promise that he was going to do it wasn't just like hey i'm going to tear your city down but i'm really going to do some bad things to it so it almost sounds like he's, he's sort of making up a long story of all the bad things I'm going to do. But God specifically said some things. I'm going to destroy your city. I'm going to make sure that it's flat. Even the dirt under your city is going to be swept away and it's all going to be thrown into the sea. Do you guys remember? The, these are pretty rough things, right? I'm going to throw it all in the sea and it's going to sink down, not just in the sea, but down in the sea deep, down to where there are ancient ruins. I mean, this is like pretty serious uh, pronouncement of judgment. So Ezekiel 26 prophesies, and I'll read this. It says, uh, I won't read it, but Ezekiel 23, many nations would come against Tyre. Ezekiel 26, four, 
The walls would be broken down. The dust would be scraped. She would be left like a bare rock. There would be a place for spreading out of fishnets. Nebuchadnezzar would build a siege wall. He would plunder the city. Stones and timber and soil would be cast in the sea. The city would never be rebuilt. That's a lot of specific things, right? So what happens? So what happens is Nebuchadnezzar comes and the city is so well fortified, Elaine, that they, they put a siege around the city for 13 years. Can you imagine this? No one comes or goes from the city for 13 years. And, but because they have the access to the water behind them, they're bringing supplies in, okay? But after 13 years, God's word comes true, and they batter the walls down, and they go in the city, and they do horrible things to the people. But a remnant or a group of the people had already escaped out to the, to the island out there about a half mile off sea. So even though all the things the Bible says about would happen to the city of Tyre, happen to the city under Nebuchadnezzar, as it says. But then God pronounced a bunch of other judgments that did not come to pass with Nebuchadnezzar. So the people of Tyre were now living offshore half mile, and they were very proud. And they were like, you know, they said all this bad stuff was going to happen to us, but look at us, no one will ever get to us. But God then sends Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great asks if he can come in and offer at their altar which was kind of a roost to be able to go into their city so he could take it. And they're like, well, we're awful friendly to you, Alexander, but you may not come into our city and offer to our God. So he realizes that what this means is they're resisting him. So they said, well, it's not like you're going to come out here and do anything about it. I mean, nobody could come out here. No one could come a half mile offshore in these turbulent waters in the water and do anything to us. Everybody say, wrong. They angered Alexander the Great, who we know... Uh, what did he, what's the quote? He wept when he conquered so-and-so because there were no more cities to conquer. What was it, Nathaniel, do you know the quote? Alexander was a warlike individual who loved conquering people, and so it was a challenge for him. And I'll try to be quick. Do you know what he did, guys? He took the old city, and he took all the stones from the old city, and guess where he did with them? Everybody say, he threw them into the sea. He threw them into the sea, and, and, and he, he built a causeway a half a mile out to there using the stones from the city and so he could bring his army across the water. Fulfilling the prophecy. I will take your city. I will take the timbers. I will take the stones and I will throw them into the sea. I mean, why would anyone throw the timbers of a city into a sea? It sounded like a crazy prophecy, did it not? So he throws them, but it's not deep enough. The, the causeway, the water is too deep and the causeway. So you know what they have to do? They have to get all the rocks and all the dust from the city and they rake it all up and they carry it out there and they use the rocks and the dust from the sea to make the causeway tall enough so they can get out to the city. And do you think they made it out there? Everybody say, yeah, they did. They made it out there and they completely destroyed the city. They leveled that city. And eventually, after they, of course, conquered the people, killed them, sold them into slavery, and did horrible things to them, then God saw fit for the ocean to actually take what was left over, and then it fell down into a deeper part of the sea. And to this day, the causeway out into the sea is still there. You can go visit it. And it's called Alexander's Causeway. I wonder why they call it that. And uh, you can go out there. But where the city was, it's gone. So I know that's a lot of extra stuff, and it's not about Mother's Day or even this woman, but it represented... These heathens that God brought great judgment on and they represented the pride of the Gentiles that God had humiliated. So there's one thing about being humble, but then when a humble person is humiliated, how many have ever been around people that are not, they're not the highest 
uh, most important people in the world, but they seem to have the most pride. Anybody been around these kind of people? They're not the smartest. They're not the most wealthy. They're not important. But if you insult them, you've insulted, it's like you've insulted a king. You guys ever been around people like this? So this is what the tendency is in, in us a lot of times, you know. People who are of low degree sometimes find people who are of lower degree and they despise them even more. So he goes to Tyre to a place where he would expect to encounter something where he is a a, a Jew and a teacher of the Jews and he's there uh, among the Jews, but he encounters this Gentile woman. This Gentile woman comes in, and instead of being the great descendant of the Phoenicians, of Tyre, of these great wealthy people, she is the descendants of a completely humiliated and destroyed people who were humiliated and destroyed by God's people, and it was written down before it ever happened. Could you imagine what a humiliating place it would be? Imagine if you came from Sodom, and you were from that country, Luke, and you know, and you were a Gentile, and you came to a synagogue, and they're just like, yeah, he's nothing but a guy from Sodom, right? It would, just, it, would be, it would be crushing to you. And so that's, that's, that's really all that built up into the moment of this. Jesus, this is Matthew. Remember, Matthew and Mark both record this. I don't think I told you Matthew and Mark, but Luke and John do not. Matthew records it this way. Jesus went from there. He departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan came there from the region, cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. He answered her not a word. Everybody say, He didn't answer a word. So it's bad enough to have your daughter demon-possessed. It's bad enough to be a Canaanite. It's bad enough to be coming to a rabbi teacher. But he won't even talk to her. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine having this need? He is humiliating her. And you might go, Well, no, he's not. Yes, he was. When you don't speak to somebody, Benita's coming. Oh, Pastor, if I just look the other way and don't talk to you, that is a way of humiliating you. It's basically saying, you're not good enough. Uh, I I don't have time enough for you. If you ever do that to people when you're angry with them, stop it. It's a very nasty thing to do. Okay? So, here we have, he answered her not a word. Now, Jesus intentionally did this. His disciples came and they urged him saying, send her away. Because now she's not just crying after you, she's crying after us. Verse 25, he answered her not. Then he finally did answer her. And he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he basically says, listen, I didn't come for you. How humiliating is this? Very humiliating. So you know what she does in response? She worships him. Worship is in of itself humiliating. Okay? And and when I use the term, you may not understand what I'm saying. We are to humble ourselves before the Lord. This woman is throwing herself at his feet. When you throw yourself at someone's feet, you're like putting your neck down. You're basically saying, you have all the power over me. Everything that is mine... I'm giving to you. I have no defense. I I just lay myself out before you. That's why we, that's what kneeling before the Lord or laying ourselves out. She's worshiping Jesus. And she he continues to insult her. She's already humbled, and he humbles her yet worse. She says, Lord, help me. He said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now you may like your little dog, Christy. And Andrea may like her little dog. Uh, 
And, and when we eat, do you think they got any, uh, any crumbs from the table on Saturday? I'm sure they did, right? We try not to feed the dog when we're at the table, but every now and then I think I see Liam do one of these numbers, you know, under the table, right? So now not only is he ignoring her, now he's going to pay her attention and he calls her a dog. Now, guys, those of you who believe in the seeker-friendly movement, those of you who believe that we ought to just be, you know, and I, I, well, you have to look at this story and you have to wonder what's going on here. Why is Jesus being so mean and insulting and humiliating to this woman? You might want to ask yourself that question. What is he doing? I think I know the answer. He was in Capernaum where he fed 5,000. He was in Capernaum where he raised the dead. He was in Capernaum where he did all of these things and taught them lovely and beautiful things that we read about. And still they rejected him. But here you have him insulting a woman, calling her a dog. She's laying at his feet. He's ignoring her. And she still worships him. Do you see this picture? That's exactly what God is wanting us to see here. He's wanting us to see the disparity. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Right? But to as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even those that believe on his name. She's like, that's right, I'm a dog. That's right, I'm a Gentile. That's right, you, your children are over there, and they're important. I'm not important. Oh, I'm just a dog. Could But you know what? A dog could even get a crumb. You might forget that you're a Gentile today. You may think you may think you're one of the Jews in Capernaum. You're not. Every single one of us are dog Gentiles that were uh, just like this woman, and that's where we were. We, we it's hard to feel that way today, dressed up and in our church and living in our country and and where we're free, the land of the free, the home of the brave, built on Christian principles. All of these things, yeah, but we're really just a bunch of dogs. Yes, Lord. She calls her a dog again. She says, yes, Lord. He's still Lord, even though he's calling her a dog. You know, when God calls you a dog, our response should be, yes, Lord. We don't like it. I remember the man, you know, he was visiting our church and and he would hate it. I would get to the part in the sermon about where we're sinners and he'd come up to me later. He said, "I I I don't like that. I don't like it when you call me a sinner. And I'm like, well, buddy, you better get used to it or find another church to go to. He found another church to go to. Jesus answered and said, oh, woman. Everybody say, oh, woman. Great is your faith. I thought it was an amazing statement to say that it was great faith. Because I didn't really see any great faith in that story at all. All I saw was humility perseverance, love for her daughter. I saw a mother doing what every mother should aspire to doing. Love lays down its life. Now, as I close, I'm going to show you what Mark adds to the story. Matthew told it. We heard it in our text already, but let me tell you what Mark adds. Mark chapter 7 from our text. He arose, went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered into the house and he wanted no one to know it. But he couldn't be hidden. He's hiding. I mean, this even adds to the thing. He's hiding from the people of Tyre. He goes there and now he wants to hide. This is just, I just, this is just amazing to me. 
for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and she came and she before it said she worshiped but here in in mark it lets us know how she did it says she fell at his feet the woman was a greek it doesn't tell us this before now it's giving you the origin of the woman the woman was a greek she was a syrophoenician by birth i mean it's letting you know who she was if you were wondering if she was a Jewish lady, come to visit. No, she was a Greek and she was, she was Syrian and she was Phoenician by birth. But she just kept asking and asking and asking. Would you cast the demon out of my daughter? Would you cast the demon out of my daughter? Jesus said, let the children be filled first for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. Jesus was sent by God to the Jews first. And then to the Gentiles. This is very, very important, especially when you understand the mission of the Gentiles. You, the, the, the mission of the apostles. Right? Do you remember in the book of Acts? You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses of me both in Jerusalem and Judea. Right? And then he goes on out, out, out further. God came to his people first. He answered, said unto her, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And then, this is what the last thing I'll point out. We get a little bit more from the story. First it was, Jesus said her faith. But Mark says it this way. Jesus said, Because of this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Her saying was a saying of humility. And what it tells me today is that our words of humility about who we are and about who God is and about what He's done for us, those are acts of faith. To be able to look at God and to see us who we are. Sometimes we're mad that God hasn't given us better than we have. Folks, you got the wrong attitude. Brother Andy has summed it up for us lately when he said, when you ask him how he is and he says, Better than I deserve, right? But many times our anger against God is because we are filled with pride and we become more like the children of Israel that rejected Him than like the Gentile woman who realized who she was before the Lord. She fell at His feet. His saying to her was not an insult. It was humiliating. But the Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He wasn't trying to make fun of her. He was saying what was true. Because compared to him, she was a dog. Compared to him, compared to to the children of Israel, she was a dog. They had the law. They had the testimonies. They had the tradition. They had all of those things. And she was a dog in comparison to them. We don't like to be compared. We don't like to be humiliated. But the truth is, is that if we look at the truth, the truth does that for us without anybody having to say it. And here she was acknowledging the truth. She acknowledged the truth of who she was. She acknowledged the truth of what could be done for her by him. And it was only a possibility. She's just hoping that a crumb would fall from the table. Are you guys, uh, is that what you want? You want a crumb from God's table? Are you, reali- are you here today to realize and understand that we're not the Almighty at the, at the special dinner, the important people, and God comes to bless us, but that we realize that we really shouldn't even be at the feast at all, but we at least get to eat under the table. We can learn a lot from that kind of humility. May today, as we remember and we think about mothers, know that there is no more humble job in the world, really, than a mother. To love 
unselfishly to give of herself, her time, her energy, her sleep, her best years of her life, her beauty. She gives it all away. She gives it all away so that her children can have life and so that they can come to the kingdom of God. May we aspire to be like this woman. And may we love our children the way this woman loved her daughter who didn't care about what was said about her as long as her little girl got freedom from the demon. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have led us into Tyre and Sidon and you humbled them. Lord, would you come into our fortified places of our lives and our pride and would you bring it down? Would you cast it into the sea? Lord, would you help us to see us as we are? Help us to see ourselves as we are. Instead of walking upright with pride, may we fall prostrate at your feet, worshiping you, pleading for crumbs from the master's table. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.